Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. This special episode is coming to you from the Australian National University in Canberra, where I'm attending the Happy Anniversary Conference hosted by the ANU Gender Institute on the one-year anniversary of the result of the Australian Marriage Law Postal Survey, to use its full title. I'll be talking with two guests today about the marriage survey, how it was conducted, who voted which way, and what it tells us about the use of popular votes in Australia to decide policy issues. First off, I'm joined by Simon Copland. Simon is a PhD candidate in sociology at the ANU and is one of the organisers of this conference. Hello, Simon. Hello, thanks for having me on. Simon, you have a paper you'll be presenting later today about the marriage survey, in part focusing on the attitudes of the, of the Yes campaign towards the idea of giving Australian voters a say over marriage equality. What do you think the marriage survey tells us about how Australian voters may differ from the political elites on social issues like marriage equality? Well, I think, I mean, I think the most interesting thing about the existence of the survey in the first place, but also the, the opinions that we saw around marriage equality, is we saw a big difference between the elites, or the elites in parliament in particular, and the general population. So we had, we had for a number of years before the survey, uh, consistent polling showing that people supported marriage equality above 60%. Above 60% of the Australian population supported marriage equality. It ranged within a margin of error there, but, but you know, ranged up to 68, 69%, sometimes down to early 60s, but that, that, that sort of, those sorts of numbers mm-hmm. were consistent. Uh, and yet at the same time, while the vast majority of the people were supporting marriage equality, we had this huge fight within, uh, within the elites who uh, could not find a way to get it done um, and saw increasing oppos- uh, significant opposition that, that slowly was eroding away, but it was eroding away much slower than what was occurring within the, uh, within the, within the general population. By the, by the time of the survey, right, um, there was a majority of parliament that supported marriage equality, but it was in such a form that they weren't a parliamentary procedure meant it wasn't possible to get it passed, but it certainly was still a lot less than what the overall population felt. Yeah, it was only, it was only a sort of a bare majority at that point in time, and yeah, it would have been enough to get, it, to get marriage equality passed, but it was not the kind of support that we saw in the community, and it was something that came much later. So, and I think this is something you can see as a bit of a trend in, uh, in social issues in Australia recently, where you see um, popular support for an issue that uh, later, later on, sort of slowly gets picked up by by par- mm. Parliament, but often is blocked. And you know, so things like euthanasia and other ex- good example of this, abortion is a good example of this, where polling shows popular support for these issues, um, but often Parliaments are very slow to pick up that agenda, uh, or are dominated by conservative voices who who hold back those sorts of agendas all the time. Yeah, and some of that some of that can be explained by the structures of party democracy, right? That the majority of people may support abortion but the, 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 those who oppose that position are concentrated in one of the two political parties in such a way that that party doesn't feel the ability to do things. You know, that Malcolm Turnbull may personally have supported particular policy positions, but his role as Prime Minister relied on people who disagreed with him and the kind of the way the coalitions are built requires sort of compromise in ways that mean that sometimes uh, something that has majority support loses that majority support in that process. And yeah, I mean, and that's exactly what happened with marriage equality. We had majority support in the parliament uh, eventually, uh, but you had a uh, sort of an impasse within the Liberal Party in particular, uh, which sort of 
denied any action on that issue. And, and But I think it's also important to think about the fact that, that that was happening in the Liberal Party at that point in time. We had similar uh, things happening in the Labor Party mm. during the Rudd-Gillard years, in yeah. which you had majority support of the Labor Party in that point of time, but you had particular factions, um, pr- primarily the SDA, uh, the very conservative union, uh, that opposed that. And that sort of held Gillard back um, politically on that issue. It held Rudd back in his, in his initial term. He sort of changed his position when he sort of came back to uh, being Prime Minister. But these sorts of internal politicking around same-sex marriage happened in both parties. Um, and it's for both the... There was enough popular support in the, in the community to pass same-sex marriage during the Rudd-Gillard years, but the Labor Party sort of held that back. And then into the t- um, Abbott Turnbull years, uh, the sort of conservative opposition to it held it back, held it mm. back as well. I noticed there was a quote in your paper that was from someone else that was referring to this concept of like a dark view of the voting public that a lot of progressive campaigners maybe it's a self-preservation kind of thing that you kind of assume the worst or you're not optimistic but there's a certain pessimism about the support for the policy positions that they believe in amongst the broader community and I think you know there was some discussion yesterday where someone at one point was like well we, we found out that 38% of people, you know, don't approve of the way we live or, or something like that. And that that is very unpleasant. But uh, I would guess that for a lot of people, if they were asked to estimate what that percentage was before the survey, they would have estimated a much larger number than 38%, right? Yeah, so that, that sort of concept um, came from Tad Tietze, um, who wrote about this uh, in, a, um, in a blog post about the Marriage Equality plebiscite. But... What I was looking at in that paper is a perception uh, within the sort of yes campaign, the marriage equality movement, of a very negative perception of the general population. And I think it's something that permeates through the queer community quite a lot. So I was having a conversation with someone yesterday who was saying that he, as a queer person, feels very uncomfortable, you know, in in Melbourne feels very uncomfortable leaving the inner suburbs of Melbourne because you sort of move out into the suburbs and, and, and you face threats or violence or things like this and that there's this perception of a sort of uh, inner city uh, um, sort of hubs of um, diversity where queer people can be comfortable and everywhere else in Australia is this sort of land of bigots almost. Mm. Um, and, I mean, there's a lot of history around this sort of perception. Um, in particular, I use... Uh, the work of Wendy Brown, who talks about um, a shift in progressive politics away from blaming, or away from fi- um, seeking um, sort of blame around these sorts of issues around the the capitalist state, and to instead seeing the capitalist state as being the the protector of minority groups. Um, and that you know, and we saw this actually in the discussion we had yesterday, and a discussion we had yesterday about representative democracy is representative democracy being increasingly seen as the thing that can protect minority groups, mm. rather than I, I would argue as the thing that uh, frequently commits violence and injustice against minority groups, uh, such as LGBTIQ people. Mm. And this played out really strongly in the plebiscite where there was this strong narrative that we can't give our give this issue to the public because the public can't handle it. The public will be bigoted, we will see this increase in violence and increase in discrimination, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so we must rely on the politicians to do this job for us. We must, we must rely on the politicians to do it. Now, what... What I argued was that, you know, I believe that, yes, there were definitely, there was absolutely instances of homophobia, transphobia that existed within that debate. There's no doubt about that. And naturally that was painful. But I think that we saw a 
lack of uh, desire to see to build any solidarity bonds with communi- with the commu- with the sixty something percent of people who did vote for marriage equality, mm. um, and in turn we sort of created a picture of the entire the Australian population as being entirely sort of homophobic rather than seeing the potential for creating social change through 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 a vote like this. You can both believe that a large majority of the country is likely to support you, and also still feel like. The process will give opportunity for bigots or for people who want to commit violence or whatever that it will motivate them or whatever. Like those two things are not completely contradictory, right? Like no, I believe in a majority that you're going to win a majority vote, and that you know you only require a few people to be to um, do unpleasant things for things to be made unpleasant. But yeah, yeah, and I, and I agree with that. Um, I think that so there's different elements to my argument here. So I think that uh, so there was one element that I think that we saw an entire a, a very largely dark view and we, we weren't you know talking about the, the idea of um, people saying oh look there's you know and I saw this quite frequently 38% of people don't don't like my you know don't believe in my right to exist or to get married or whatever I, f- I see that as a sort of a, a constant half glass full approach to the to looking at the general population um, my argument so that's one part of that that we, there is a sort of half glass uh, glass half full approach um, the second argument is that I think that there were potentials that could have come out of a public vote uh, that we sort of, because of this dark view, because of this sort of negative perception, we didn't engage in. Yeah, and, and it was also a campaign, you know, people talk about, oh, we only had seven weeks to mobilise this campaign, which I just think is not true because there was a year and a half of debate about whether to have a plebiscite or not. We could have, instead of being debating about whether to have a plebiscite, we could have been mobilising to reach out to voters to change their minds on the mm. issue and to have a proactive campaign that built solidarity with voters. Instead, we spent that year and a half talking about how voters should not be trusted with this sort of issue because you know the sort of majority rule on this sort of issue is a, is a negative thing or we're going to see all of this increase in violence and homophobia. We could have spent that time building the solidarity, building um, you know links with, 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 with a whole range of community groups and a whole range of communities to change perspectives and to actually sort of stamp out those that, that homophobia in the long run. Instead, we just assumed it's naturally there and that we can't do anything about it, so we have to let the politicians just do the things for us. There was also a bit of that dark view that came out quite a lot in terms of the result of the website. Yeah. That um, the focus on Western Sydney, I did a bunch of research about the demographics that found that, yes, the, the most multicultural areas in terms of the lowest numbers of people born in Australia and highest numbers of people who don't speak English, yes, those areas did tend to vote no more but actually the stronger trend was religiosity both religiosity in very white areas as well which also tended to vote no at a higher rate and there was kind of a it was kind of a parabola where the middle the middle area in terms of levels of multiculturalism were the people that were more likely to vote yes and you know um yeah there was a bit of a tone of uh uh, kind of cutting off or like nasty things about Western Sydney and it's like a lot of people in Western Sydney voted yes and a lot of people in Western Sydney who live in Western Sydney campaigned on the issue there and like there was I remember a rally and door knocks in Parramatta and things like that in where I live and you know frankly Western Sydney is probably just 10 or 15 years behind other parts of the country because it is a bit more religious and that campaign hasn't caught up and I think there was sometimes a bit of a sense of well blaming all the voters and uh, but also uh, not really looking at, you know, where was the campaign focused. And the campaign was about locking in the people who were already on board and there were less of those in Western Sydney, so it's not surprising. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, I mean, what's interesting about this sort of this sort of dark view that I talk about is is who it's targeted at. And mm. I think that 
you see it primarily targeted at two groups, uh, working class people, an assumption that working class people are, uh, are homoph more homophobic, uh, and what we saw in the results um, following, the following the results was a targeting, and a, and a really unfortunate targeting from um, gay people, uh, LGBTI people targeting multicultural communities uh, and, you, and, and saying that they are behind the rest of Australia, they're backwards, they're something like, some, you know, something along these lines. Um, and seeing, they're sort of building into this, uh, buying into this narrative that multiculturalism is bad for uh, questions like equality in, mm. in a country like Australia, which is coming from you know so-called progressives is a really depressing narrative to see um, and so it sort of builds into this idea that we have this sort of yeah. inner city educated um, people who are so socially progressive and the rest of Australia this sort of suburban working class multicultural there that that's the the hubs of conservatism in Australia I mean um, from a factual basis it's also nonsense in the sense that there was also a higher no vote in very mon monocultural rural areas part of what is appealing about that kind of inner city community you talk about is this diversity and that you, you can't really separate those diversities right like they all kind of come as a package that like both having broader cultural diversity and yes maybe there are some places in western sydney that have smaller pockets than you would find in the rural areas but small pockets of other monocultures uh, but it is diversity in all its forms that kind of creates that and it it seems a bit like an own goal yeah, I think it is an absolute own goal. You know, when you want to have a, a community that talks about diversity and then sort of um, has a go at, you know, these other sort of diverse communities because they're, you know, it's sort of, you know, we we just had a, a talk from uh, David Patenot from, um, from Belgium and he talks about this idea of marriage being framed around the idea of modernity. Um, and so what we saw was this sort of idea that the, the, the no voting states were backwards, that they were they were not modern enough, that they were, um, they were behind the times and often that was targeted at multicultural communities. Um, as And so it sort of plays into this narrative of places like the Middle East or Africa or Asia being backwards and the West being sort of modern and global and forward thinking. Um, and that is like inherent, like that is a racist narrative, but it's also one that is just completely unhelpful when it comes to talking about issues of marriage equality. We don't solve the problem by saying you're backwards. Mm. We solve the problem by engaging in why people might be voting no in these sorts of, um, in these sorts of surveys uh, and thinking about how we can engage in those sorts of questions and change those sorts of perspectives. But instead what we saw is people talking about let's build a fence between Western Sydney and Eastern Sydney because we want to keep these people out. Like that is the kind of rhetoric we, we should be opposing at all, at all mm. costs. Like, and that's, it's just not acceptable. Okay, great. Thanks, Simon. You also do your own podcast. Do you want to let us know about that? Yeah, I do a podcast with uh, Benjamin Riley. We do a fortnightly discussion on queer politics and, and culture and a whole range of things. Um, and you can find us at queerspodcast.com or on Facebook or Twitter at queerspodcast. And we'll link to it on the show notes. That'd be great. Um, thanks, Simon. Thanks for having me on. So our next guest is Dr. Liz Allen. Liz is a demographer at the ANU Centre for Social Research and Methods. Hello, Liz. Good to be with you. So, Liz, uh, you've been looking at the marriage survey from the perspective of its methodological design in terms of how surveys normally work and um, how much it meets that or doesn't meet it. And what, what's your main takeaway in terms of um, how this um, stacks up against other work that the ABS has done? If we take a real kind of purist approach and look at um, the design in terms of the mode of collection and the like, it, it certainly mirrors a survey uh, in that it's seeking 
uh, opinion mm. or attitude. Where it kind of uh, departs from that is it's a single question. We're not collecting other information uh, around uh, the individual who's providing the data um, to help us contextualise or understand or control for characteristics around mm. um, uh, the, the, the individual's uh, characteristics. So it kind of looks like a survey, but it, it's not. So it, it, it's, it's this weird kind of in-between that it's, um, it, it's a survey that we didn't need to have, mm. that was pushed on us. It was non-binding, um, non-compulsory. It, 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 it kind of fails the sniff test for mm. any kind of real robust statistical collection. Um, and in fact, if, if we wanted to delve a little bit deeper and understand the, the patterns of responses and, and wanting to control or, or look at how those responses align with other characteristics, so for example, religion, mm. we, can't, we can't do that. We, we have to rely on other um, indirect methods, if you like, to, mm. to be able to understand that. The work that I've done around analysing religion and its relationship, you have to you're looking at correlations at an electorate level, which is very imprecise, and it doesn't it tells you that maybe these places that are more religious had a higher no vote, but um, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't give you that kind of level of information or those cross tabs that you would otherwise get. No, and what sticks in my mind is there was a conversation article, um, uh, was co-authored by. Paco Perales from uh, UQ, and they basically used HILDA data, Housing Income Labour Dynamics in Australia data, that that actually looked at um, someone's cognitive processing or kind of intelligence and looked at how that related to their response in the HILDA survey to um, whether or not they supported equality under the law for for homosexual people, mm. as it's stated in in the Hilda survey, and they found that there was a relation that that people who who were found in Hilda to have a lower cognitive functioning than than others were more likely to support a no than a mm. yes, and I found that quite quite confronting. I think that, um, but also really interesting from a data point of view that. That we could see that in in survey data that perhaps there was um, there might be issues around reasoning or, or understanding or whatever, but at the same time it was it was very damaging. In other words, it, what was said was you're dumb if you you say no, and and so it even even though it was a survey we we didn't have to have it was if it was a real real survey, mm. we had so much damage occurring. Um, in the community, you know, we had kids being being you know yelled at and abused on buses, and then we had the academic community coming out and saying you're dumb or you're whatever you're this what it was just yeah. mud slinging all over the place. That sort of stuff explains why the ABS didn't necessarily want to give that Indeed. level of information they normally would. But it, I mean, people still speculate, you know, like it's still something that people want to look into. Something I find really interesting about it as well is so like. The, what are the features of that you would normally have in a survey that you didn't have? Like, there was no sense of representativeness or no. the voluntariness of it. Or what, what are those? What are those features that were kind of missing? I think what was what was missing. If we if we think about the process of, of research, 
when it comes to ethics, and I'm big on ethics, we don't do research for the sake of doing research. Mm. There is, there must be, the the benefit is weighed against the harm or the potential risks associated with a survey. Mm. If we'd weighed that, and if we'd done the our due process as researchers, mm. that survey would never have gotten up. So, so in terms of an ethical kind of um, assessment, that would not have passed a, a, a research organisation ethics um, process. So that's the first thing. I, I don't think we could we could show earnestly that that the the the, um, the potential benefits um, outweighed the risks. I think, in my mind. So that's kind of the very crucial start point. Then if we look at, um, uh, there was no collection of um, uh, characteristics around age or other socio-demographic information that helps us understand or interpret uh, the results, but also um, allows us to identify whether or not we have any kind of level of, of representativeness mm. or, or otherwise. And actually, I mean, the AEC, the AEC did provide age and gender information with the electoral roll. So the ABS did have some of that information, but deliberately chose not to apply weighting as well, right? It wasn't just that the data wasn't collected, but they made a choice that they wouldn't, they wouldn't do any kind of weighting. I think there was a that, that's right that's right there's so much more could have been done but I think there was we also need to think about this survey in the context of census fail mm. and I think I think there is some kind of uh, we need to understand that in in some respects the ABS um, was forced to do something that while you could argue is their business is not their main business no. and is is very foreign. That's not not that's not something that they're used to doing. Well, I guess that gets into then the question of okay, so it doesn't really look like a survey, but it then has all these elements of a vote. And while yep. they're both collections of information from large populations, they are very different yes. in their function and how they work. And mm. the AEC has built processes over a century to you know, ensure transparency and fairness and all these kind of things. And the ABS kind of was, as much as they insisted on calling it a survey, there were many things about it that looked like a vote. That's right, that's right. And I think, um, you know, if we understand the context of the ABS, um, I think in terms of the information that they collected or released alongside the yes or no, um, was influenced by the, the the public's perception of the ABS following the so-called census fail, mm. and also that context of fear around data integration and fear of um, uh, data retention. All of these things were bubbling around in in terms of temporal um, distance, location to this the so-called survey. I don't know. I think you'd be you'd be hard pressed to find something kind of in Australia's history or, or, or worldwide that we'd come close to this, right, yeah, in terms I'm, of decision-making. Yeah, and, I mean, it was a thing that, like, wasn't their first preference, right? Their preference That's was right. to conduct a plebiscite. And while we don't have a lot of plebiscites in this country, it is a thing that we've had. You know, mm. we've, had, we've had two plebiscites on conscription 100 years ago when we, we voted on a national anthem, and there's been many plebiscites at a state level as well as constitutional referendums. So it is a thing that exists as a process and you know there are there is legislation that covers how referendums are conducted that is pretty similar to elections and so 
it kind of created this, I mean, it's come out a little bit in the public, but from my perspective, the, like, they, they wanted a level of secrecy as they were processing the forms, which um, you wouldn't normally have for an election because you wouldn't start counting them till after the election was closed. Mm. And they wanted, they wanted to start processing them early, so they needed a level of secrecy, and that meant that the what they called observers as opposed mm. to scrutineers in an election. And I, don't, and I don't think you have things like observers for a census, do you? There are observers for right. a census um, and um, uh, right. more like a quality assurance mm. um, uh, figures, but they are obviously not politically aligned no. or, or anything like they're that. Not, they're ABS they staff. Indep- they're not independent, though. They're, they're not, not independent. Yeah. In it, that's, that's exactly right. So... Um, it's it's I still come back to you know from an academic investigation you know it's it's a fascinating process but at the end of the day it was a process that we didn't need to have no. um, you know survey data decades of survey data shows that Australians uh, were were in favour of equality um, by majority you know yeah. it's and and that. Uh, is was unwavering. If if anything, our our resolve was in, increasing. So it was for me. It was more, and it should have been more of a, a management of change uh, process than a than than any kind of enumeration of opinion, attitude, or even a, a, an electoral process. Really, yeah. it should have been uh, among the the our leaders. We, we we should have seen leadership. It is a lesson as well that I feel like we need to keep emphasising that you know maybe while there were positive results and the a lot of people were very happy with the result and you know it did resolve the issue in a political sense mm. um, that this is not a this is not a procedure we should have you know if if we want if we want to conduct popular votes then they should be conducted as votes using the same democratic mechanisms we have and if we want to conduct surveys we should do surveys and yep. this is a thing that should be put away in a box and never never brought out again I, I totally agree, and I often wonder whether if we had had uh, a level of leadership where this was more of a, a management of change, change management, that we would not have, we would not have, we would not be seeing now the the level of um, angst I think uh, in the community. You know, we're we're still arguing about cakes and. Mm religious freedoms and and in my mind you know and I think in in the mind of many people that this the hope was that this survey and almost the promise that this so-called survey would would be the end mm. but in some respects there's no finality to it and in fact we're still seeing that process and I wonder whether if we had had leadership where just as the 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 then Attorney General George Brander said, "I suspect the majority will say yes." Well, why not? Why not take action to prevent um, the the murkiness that has happened since? You know, the arguments over goddamn cakes and and freedoms and mm. uh, you know, and I, I still think we're having arguments over the way that we 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 teach safe schools and things like that, all stemming from this idea that. Everyone has a right to an opinion on this. Thanks for joining me, Liz. Thank you. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room podcast. Thank you to Simon and Liz for joining me. We'll be back next week with another episode about the Victorian state election. 
You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes because it helps other people discover the show. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. Information about this podcast is available at www.tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Chris DeBro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.